are you just going to destroy everything I'm going to say? This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am with Reed Dent, of course, but also L. Grover Fricks to talk about the story of the Good Samaritan and what it looks like to love people we'd rather not. I don't... Is this... Brent, is this the first time that two of the co-hosts have have been on with one another without Marty? Yes, I believe so. Good thing you chose the two co-hosts who are the top six longest episodes on the podcast. <laughs> so <Right>. far. <laughs> yeah, I really I so really kind of in. expected L to uh, team up with Josh, but uh this is a delightful surprise to get the two of you together first. Oh, it's coming. Oh, I I know. Josh and I know. I's collab is also it's on the schedule. Just I'm just here like, you know, I'm the rapper in your verse. I just have the little extra <laughs> little extra thing to pop down. But you're like this the, is hype, the, show. the hype woman, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Good Samaritan I... by Reed Dent featuring L. Grover Fricks. Oh, nice. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, so this will be our first uh actual parable after the intro and uh, we decided to just come in with a whopper a well-known parable um that is the good samaritan indeed should i uh start us off with a little bit of text yeah let's do it on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test jesus teacher he asked what must i do to inherit eternal life what is written in the law he replied how do you read it he answered love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Okay, so we talked before about how uh, a lot of the parables that we get are in response to a particular person. Um, Some of them are taught to the crowds, but a lot of them are addressed to a particular person who has a particular question. Um, oftentimes we noted that it's somebody who has a particular blind spot, um, something that maybe they're not aware of, but that Jesus is. And instead of answering the question directly, he tells a story to kind of get at that blind spot. Um, and so here, Luke 10, we've got, uh, we've got an expert in the law. A, uh, I mean, it's, it doesn't technically translate as Bible scholar, but I think that's an appropriate, uh, a, a close approximation. This is not like a, just in, to clear it up, this is not like a legal like uh, law expert, but a Torah law expert, uh, somebody who knows the text and is an expert on it and things pertaining uh, thereto. This nomi, nomikos, I think is the way you say that word. Nomi. No, nomikos. Thank you. This is why I have L here to correct all of my bad pronunciations. <laughs> um, so we have a nomikos who stands up uh, to test Jesus in asking this question, what must I do to inherit eternal uh, life? Um, and what the first thing I want to note is uh, just this is not purely like a a neutral question. He's not just asking because he's wondering or he's looking for an answer for himself. I mean, this guy is, as we've already been told, he is an expert in the law. And I think there are maybe a couple of ways to look at his question then. Um, one would be as a as a test of uh, maybe authority, or I don't know if it would be okay to call it orthodoxy. 
Um, and I say that because we've had, so in the chapter right before this and leading up to this, we've had stories of uh, some wonderful, incredible things happening. Disciples are being sent out. Others are being sent out uh, to do the work of preaching the kingdom and healing and casting out demons. And they come back and it's happening. And the disciples are super excited and they're like, even the demons submit. And so I can see this being a question from this law expert to kind of, it's almost like, are you really for real? Like these things are are happening, but are you really for real? Do you really know what's what? Do you have authority to say and do what you are saying and doing? Um, I, I was imagining like if you had one evangelical preacher go up to another one and say, what must I do to be saved? Uh, he's, and maybe that ministry, maybe that other evangelical preacher's ministry has been blowing up and the church is getting really big. And he comes in and he's like, what must I do to be saved? He's not asking because he wants to know. He's asking because he wants to see if you know. And if the the ministry that's going on is founded upon, uh, you know, something something sound, something correct. Yeah, totally. Uh, I agree that that's probably what's going on. I think that he's also looking for a summation, um, just like in the what must I do to be saved? You know, we're asking someone to encapsulate the gospel for us. And so I think this particular question, which I know you're going to get into more, but he's looking for you know, tell me about how you are like as a teacher, what's your, what's your thesis? How, what's your take on Torah? Um, and I want to highlight, it's not necessarily aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, sometimes we see, or we imagine all the people who are talking to Jesus, you know, as the bad guys and they're always trying to get in. Um, and of course, certainly speculative that could be the case, but also um, asking these kinds of questions is just the way that you interact with the rabbi. Like you wouldn't say, so Rav, what's your deal? <laughs> what are you about? Um, would this would be like going like to this. a church's website today to see their doctrinal statement? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, it can be a, a test, but mm-hmm. it can also be more of a peer based thing. So, yeah, I, uh, I think that's right. Um, there is, uh, so Kenneth Bailey is somebody that we're going to be talking about kind of throughout this and the parables, uh, series because Kenny B, Kenny B our boy, Kenny B, <laughs> yep. um, because he is, uh, I think pretty invaluable for getting some of the like unstated cultural stuff that is woven into these parables. Um, and one of the things that he notes is, and it's, perfectly possible that it is just a neutral website browsing kind of question. Um, but he, he, he notes that in the culture, it's usually customary for the student to stand as a sign of respect for mm. the teacher. And mm-hmm. so when it says he stood up, it's as if he is putting himself in the position of the student, but then it's kind of flipped because he is now putting Jesus to the test. And so it's possible you could read that as like an outward show of respect, but maybe there's a little bit of, um, I don't know about deception, but there's an ulterior motive where it's like, yeah, maybe I'm not the student. Maybe I'm going to make you the student. I don't know. Just wanted to throw that possibility out there. Um, whatever the motivation is, I think it's probably worth just for our own listeners talking a little bit about 
uh, the content of the question, what the words mean and don't mean, um, because I know that for some, like there's already, uh, we say eternal life, and there are certain things that pop into listeners' heads. Um, and so, so what, and, and other, if you've listened to other, uh, many other aspects of the podcast, many other episodes, like this is not going to come as a shock to you, but I don't think that what this teacher is asking is, um, how, what do I have to do to go to heaven forever and ever after I die? Uh, I don't think that that's what eternal life, that's not what they have in mind when they say that. Um, it's not so much. Uh, eternal life here is not so much about a, a duration, like endless time, or uh, a destination, like the pearly gates of heaven, as it is about a, a kind or a quality of life. Um, it's speaking about a, a kind of life that is altogether different from what I can find that is made presently available by any of the usual sources. Um, it's, it's like a quality of life that is other than what is currently on offer by the rulers or for us by our commercials. I mean, we're recording this just before Christmas. And so I'm feeling the sting of like the promise of a quality of life by buy this thing uh, or career checks or achievements, jobs, pensions, vacations, all that kind of stuff. Is there a kind of life that belongs not to any of that, uh, but to God alone? And I, th- I think is the meaning or the, s- the sense of the life of the age to come. Uh, when God is ruling, the kingdom is here. Yeah, it's kind of like saying, uh, what can I do to experience kingdom? There, right now? there we go. Like yeah. in, in Jewish theology, there's like these different planes, and one plane is going to dissolve, and eventually the one to come, Olam Haba, the coming world, uh, is the only one that will remain. So what can we do to live life in that next plane now? Yeah, um, what do I have to do to uh, inherit it? Which I just, right. I wanted to note, like, uh, on the one hand, it's kind of a silly question because the thing about inheritances is that you don't, you, you, you don't do anything to get them. Mm. Um, it's a gift. So it's probably just worth noting, like, an inheritance is a gift. But I do think that, on the other hand, like, the question of how to enter into this, how to secure it, how to get it, I do think that's a valid question. Uh, and right. So, yeah. And so... Jesus does what uh, he does. And uh, Brent, can you hit us with those next couple of verses? Yeah. What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And that was Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the guy answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Okay. So here's Jesus being clever, being crafty. Um, he he speaks he's speaking on this guy's terms he's turning the subject back to the law to back to torah um but notice also he is not answering the question he is turning the tables and he is making himself the examiner now with a question of his own uh how do you read it i do think that he's also he is kind of answering the question because inheritance is a conversation around patronage right mm-hmm. your patron the patriarch of the household um is god and he's going to be handing out inheritances to the people in his household to the people who have been walking out the calling of this household. And so him saying, how do I inherit it? It's bringing in that cultural part of the conversation to say, hey, I know God's the patriarch of my household. How do I walk out his calling and live in a way that I'll inherit something? And Jesus says, 
uh, from this patron. And Jesus says the way that you walk out the calling that God has given us as members of his household is by following the Shema and um, this Leviticus thing from Hillel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, well, but it's the, the guy is the, Jesus is letting the guy answer the question. He is letting, he's, he's letting those words be in his mouth. And so he's, I think he's directing him. He's guiding him toward that answer. And I think Jesus, maybe Jesus knows that how this guy is going to answer the question, being an expert in the law. I don't know that he knows that, but maybe he does. And so he's guiding him towards that. Uh, and he lets the lawyer answer for himself. And, you know, he answers correctly. The passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, um, and then it goes on to say, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? And I've often just kind of read right over this. Um, and then I, I, this time I had to stop and realize like, why does he feel the need to justify himself? Like the defensiveness, if there is defensiveness, it feels a little sudden to me, um, I, I don't, he, so like is another way, what are some other ways that we can kind of word this uh, phrase? He wanted to justify himself. Um, is it in the sense that like he wants to prove that he was right? Uh, in which case I don't, I don't understand because Jesus has already told him you have answered correctly. Um, is it like he wanted to save himself or prove himself righteous? Uh, I don't, I don't know. It seems kind of out of nowhere. Um, and so, yeah, he, he asked this question, um, and, and I'm wondering why, I don't know, Elle, do you have any thoughts about this turn? Like why he is asking this question? Um, I do. I just, again, it's just speculation, but what if he's auditioning to be a disciple? <laughs> like you have to be invited by Jesus to be a disciple. So what if this guy's popping up? He wants to know mm. who Jesus is and what he's about. So he's trying to get his attention. Oh, um, but okay. then Jesus is like, yeah, you already know this stuff. And then he moves on. He's like, wait, 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 <laughs> like, look at me. I, I have good questions, right? Cause that's the whole rabbinical relationship is, uh, asking questions back and forth. And so he's trying to come up with a good question to ask him. Um, and so he comes up with who is my neighbor, which isn't a bad question in my opinion. No, I don't, I don't think it's a bad question. And this is where I think it's so interesting to kind of just get off the trail and wander through the possibility of the possibilities of somebody's motivations, like what's behind the question. Cause I think there's like almost an opposite way of hearing it. Uh, that is, here's what I wondered. Maybe this guy, um, has kind of seen what Jesus has been doing. Uh, he has seen the way that Jesus is going around and, uh, loving maybe and keeping company with the wrong sorts of people. Um, and maybe he is realizing that having answered this question of, you know, love the Lord and then, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, Maybe it's like, oh, now I'm going to be implicated because Jesus says, that's correct. Go and do it. And I wonder if the guy is like, wait, am I going to have to do this the way that Jesus does it? And maybe there is some kind of prejudice in him or a bias that is going to like stop him from doing that, which I mean, that's not unrelatable for pretty much all of us. Like we all have our people who uh, we would rather not love. We all have our people where it's like, yeah, but are they my neighbor? And so maybe that's what's behind the question. Maybe he's trying to kind of take what I think Jesus like is always expanding that idea of 
love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Like he expands it out into infinity where it's like even your, even your enemies are people that you should love. And I wonder mm-hmm. if the guy feels the kind of like, uh-oh of that, like I've answered, but now this is the kind. And so he's trying to, he's trying to draw the lines. Like he's trying to actually hedge it in instead of expand it. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's totally possible. Um, I, I think it, I relate personally, um, right? I recognize my insecure self or my younger self or more immature self and the person who wants to say like, (laughs) who wants to be noticed, right? By the big fancy person in town who Mm. wants to point out like, oh, I know stuff. I know the right questions to ask, right? Mm. Um, And so- just personally, I think that one skewers me more and makes me ask myself, boy, is there anyone I'm trying to impress right now just for my ego? Hey, is there, do I feel like I need to impress God, you know? Um, so those questions are helpful for me because of yeah. my particular proclivities and the way God made me. Yeah. But it's also, you know, there's all sorts of different people out there. And if that's that other reading mm-hmm. um, rings better for you and strikes at you like, oh man, yeah, I do try to like find ways to fence off, but I don't have to love those people. Right. Um, then you should go with that one. See, and I feel I, it's, I'm so glad you said that. Cause one of the things we talked about in the introduction was how, you know, these parables are kind of like a house that you can get in and you, you go inside and you're looking out these windows and you're examining all of these like, these issues, these experiences of life. And you can kind of look out the windows from one side of the house and you can see it from one vantage point. And then you can look at it from out the other side and see a different vantage point, like as you are living Mm -hmm. in this house. And for me, Mm -hmm. like the thing that skewers me is, I mean, there are people where it's like, man, I would really like to draw the boundary line here and cause, right. cause I don't, um, I don't have it within myself, like to muster up something like love for this person. If I'm being really honest, that's my own, right. you know what I mean? And so I just, I love how we, the parables, like it's not just Jesus spouting information and like, he's not just dictating like commands and mandates. He is, mm-hmm. and I, I hear like inherent in all of the parables is that, well, how do you read it? Which is the a, a question that comes up you know, a number of times. And so for us, it's like, well, how do you read this expert in the law? I read him this way, you read him that way. Anyway, I love the dynamic. Anytime we have image language that's more abstract, it's invitational to read ourselves into the story. You know, I think that's one of the gifts of abstract over, Mm -hmm. you know, the literal story is that it does give room. And if we get too jacked up on which one's correct, we might miss (laughs) the point. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so this ahead, guy Brad. stands up and he is an expert in the law, which he does not announce. It is just known that that's what he is. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently. So I don't know if that's how he's dressing or whatever. Yeah. It's a class of person. Um, and also these communities aren't that big. And so he's probably known. Sure. So in this case, does expert in the law specifically refer to Torah? Um, So this social class was created in the Babylonian era when they're captives. Um, They're called Sufrim in Hebrew. Uh, And they, their job is to be interpreters and to know Torah, including the legal portions, um, because we can't assimilate 
right? We can't give in to empire, even though we're in the midst of them. Um, and so this new class, which was considered a high class because not everybody can write, right? That bespeaks a certain level of education. Um, and so he was probably known in his community. Was that your question? I still have mom brain and my newborn is right next to me. I mean, that's part of my question, but, um, so in light of that, because we're talking about questions and the idea of asking questions, and obviously Jesus turns his question around on him immediately and asks his own question. So it's almost surprising that the guy comes back and just gives an answer instead of another question at that point. And he does eventually get to another question, but it seems weird that he, that he just like, it's almost like he gives up or maybe because he is an expert in the law and Jesus specifically asks what is written in the law. Uh, he's like, oh, well, I'm the expert. I better give my, like, here's my chance to give my opinion. It just, it, right. it's, uh, it's almost like Jesus like recognizes who he is and what his, you know, what his Shtick. thing is. Yeah. And, and just, just like gets him hook, line and sinker to, to give him an answer. And Jesus is like, yep, good. I'm moving on. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind like, of, Oh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. It's kind of like what El was just saying. Like, this is his chance to pipe up and impress. And so instead of shooting back with, well, I asked you first, you know, he's like, Oh, okay. I'll answer. Like I, I know, yep. I know the right. answer. Yeah. Yep. I had a chance to meet John Piper as a teenager and that was a really big deal for teenage me. And let me tell you, I thought a long time about my question. <laughs> I and maybe... did he turn it around and ask you a question instead? Uh, no. Uh, yeah. I bet he gave an answer. Story for a different time. I would love story to hear that story. Uh, I would love to hear that story sometime. Um, deal. Anyway. Okay. So we've got this guy, whatever his motivations, um, we can read it a few different ways. Uh, but he's he's got this question. Jesus turns it back on him. He gives an answer. And then he poses a second question to Jesus. Um, maybe this one is also a test. Maybe it's not. Maybe he feels like he's got his back against the ropes a little bit. And so he's got to like try to draw those lines like we talked about. Whatever the case, in response to all of that, Jesus does my favorite thing that Jesus does. He tells uh, this this story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Okay, so we've got a guy who is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho on a on a road there. El, you've got a note here. Um I love these two. I love these two words. Switchback Central. I think I know where you're going with that. But what what are what are you thinking about this road? Yeah. Uh, so if you've ever driven, I had the misfortune to be driving in Haaretz. It is man, you bless God that you're alive. But um, it is switchback after switchback after switchback, and I just think that adds a little bit of color in that it's not that you know, there's a forest and you come upon this guy lying in the road and you kind of shrug and move on. And you don't see him again. 
you see this guy from the top of the hill and you're like, what is that? And you get closer and closer and closer and closer and you see him and you decide what to do, go to the other side. And then you've got the whole rest of that hill where you can still, you don't even have to look over your shoulder because every time you're on a switchback, there it is. There he is again. Mm. And you're still walking. Yeah. Still walking away. I I love that that you brought that up because a lot of the significance of this parable to me is kind of playing on this idea that like we see uh, and we have time to see. And then what do we do uh, when we as we approach, um, which we'll get to. So we've got this guy here. He is uh, stripped. He's beaten. Uh, and he is left half dead. So I'm presuming that he's pretty unconscious and he's pretty he's he's naked. Um, and there was one little deep. It's like a passing sentence in Bailey that I read um, where he he draws attention to this uh, and it kind of blew this parable wide open for me. Um, and that is basically this idea that what what there is um like distinct or remarkable, what there is to say about this man is that there's not really much that we can say about him other than the fact that he is a human. And so like, cause in, um, in this region, lots of ethnicities, lots of religious affiliations. Um, and the surest way to know like who someone was as quickly as possible, uh, if you see them passing by or if you interact with them, um, there, he, he notes there are kind of two ways. One is through, uh, their dialect, um, how they are speaking. And the other is what manner of dress they have on. Uh, and so it's like the, the quick way to know, are these my people or not? Are they safe or not? Um, it, or, or are they my neighbor or not? Um, because we didn't say this before, but you know, there isn't a, a conversation, uh, about technicalities around neighbors and like who counts as a neighbor or not, which is another reason why the maybe the question that the law expert asks is a valid one. Like, is my neighbor just the sons of my people? Is my neighbor a Gentile? Is it a proselyte? Is it somebody, you know, like who counts as my neighbor or not? Um, the best way to know is listen to them speak or see how they are dressed. And this guy who is half dead and naked gives you neither of those things. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Um, it's definitely a, oh, I don't know how to associate with this person. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the rules are, mm -hmm. except for, you know, nakedness is a big deal in their culture, just like it is in mm -hmm. ours. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the word for neighbor is la, um, which entertainingly uh, sounds exactly like the word for evil, <laughs> just spelled different. Uh, so, you know, if you okay. find yourself annoyed at your neighbors, um, <clears throat> there's something there. But uh, it's similar. It's built from like, the root word has to do with pasture. So it's just the person with their pasture next mm, to you. Okay. And so some of that argument about, well, who's really my neighbor is because the definition of the word mm. uh, implies just the people right next to you. Mm -hmm. So... Mm -hmm. Um, it's more of a limiting thing that I, I agree Jesus uses uh, a lack of markers on this person, a open slate, so that we have to do the work of imagining, well, what mm -hmm. if it was this person? What if it was yeah, this person? Yeah, yeah. Don't want to jump ahead of anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that some of the audience at least would have assumed that he was a Jew, but uh, Jesus uh, is letting that line be pretty fuzzy. 
Uh, and I think that it's like, as it stands in the parable, the only thing that Jesus really needs us to know about this man is that uh, he is human and that he is in immense need. The term half dead, is that is that like a specific term that means something that we should read? Or is it just like, I mean, nobody wants to be halfway to death. I don't, I mean... I, like when when I say when, when I think halfway to death in that in that phrasing, it seems like, oh, I'm halfway through my my lifespan. But that's obviously not what's going on here. Um, half, it's a princess bride reference, actually. Yeah. Mostly dead. He's only that's mostly actually dead. what it says on the Greek. <laughs> mostly dead. <laughs> He's definitely not all the way dead. Yeah, and Billy Crystal's voice, actually. There's a little note in the manuscripts. He's only mostly dead. <laughs> Isn't that in your NET Thank Bible you. there, Brent? Isn't You got the footnotes, right? <laughs> yeah. It, As you always it, do. Well, the NET just says it's a, it means he's a, in a state between life and death or severely wounded. It's like, okay, well, sure. I mean, yeah. I realize that, but I'm just wondering if if that phrase in the Greek is something that like has more of a medical definition or something more concrete that we can hold on to, to understand what his condition is. Going to be honest, Brent, I don't even know what chapter we're in right now. So I can't <laughs> check the Greek for you. <laughs> Luke, Luke 10, Luke 10. Luke 10. Thanks. Um, I mean, I don't know the way that I kind of see it as the, um, so he's not all the way dead. Uh, and, but like, He's he's going to be very beaten and bloodied looking. And as you're walking up, like I was talking about on those switchbacks, like you don't you don't know. Uh, he's he's probably just laying there. And so, um, it, I mean, I guess it's my understanding that if he's all the way dead, then that is going to automatically have uh, some implications for like how close a priest and a Levite are going to get to this corpse. Um, but as, so again, it, it just feels like if there's anything to this, it's that there's a fuzzy line there and Jesus is leaving the, the state, the identity of this person just fuzzy up in the air. And again, here's a person who is in, in need. Yeah. I think if I had to guess, I would say that he is clearly not completely dead. Mm -hmm. He is, he is in a state where he's going to be dead if he does not receive help. Something along that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, if it helps, Brent, it, it does literally say that. It says half and then dead. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, so then we get our, our other characters entering and let's go ahead a little bit more. A priest happened to be going down the same road, which is really interesting. What, like, is this that uncommon of a journey? Like, oh, a priest happened to be going. Uh, it seems like it would be fairly busy road but I, I mean i hear that as like oh here's a little bit of a surprise maybe this is a maybe this is a godsend uh maybe this person is being sent to help this person who is in it like oh good fortune like isn't that good luck because do we expect the priest to do a certain thing once he gets there sure mm -hmm. so a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so my uh, good evangelical upbringing um, that really just tended to talk about priests and Levites and Pharisees and like Jewish people in like a uh, less than charitable way has trained me uh, to my, my, my first blush of this was always... 
Yeah, those guys, they are like so, you know, cold and unhelping. Like they're they are so bad. These priests like they they won't even help this guy. And I and I do want to try to guard against that, to guard against any like uh automatic turning up of our nose or like an unthinking condemnation. Because I I don't think that Jesus is simply wanting to just trash on priests and Levites um, by insinuating here that there's nothing more, that they're nothing more than a bunch of heartless monsters. And I think if we think about the situation and the potential ramifications, implications, consequences for the priest and the Levite to helping this unknown person, if we think about what that would actually end up meaning for them, then maybe that might make us a little more sympathetic and maybe that would make us think twice uh, about how we would be if we were in their shoes. Uh, and so, um, and again, this is going back to some cultural um, back information uh, from Bailey, but imagine if you are the priest, you come upon uh, this, the, there's this this lump in the road that you're seeing switchback after switchback. And as you get closer, it becomes more and more apparent that this is a very uh, badly injured person. You don't really know if they're alive or dead. You don't know Jew or Gentile. You don't know anything about them. Um, but I mean, you do know Jew or Gentile with a naked dude. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, okay. Yes. <laughs> Who wants to get that close? But, yeah. If you were to get yeah, that close, ahead. right? If you were to get that close. Um, but, right. but otherwise, you don't know. And if you come up too close to it, uh, and uh, if it's like, if it's dead, you are, if you get within like so close to it, then you are going to become uh, like ritually unclean, which mm-hmm. I think to us, like that just sounds like a antiquated or to me, at least my evangelical, like non-denominational upbringing was, oh, all that stuff about ritually unclean, like none of that matters anymore because Jesus. And so this just sounds like this guy is like this got this antiquated legalistic notion that just has to do with his own personal piety. Um but if we, again, think about the implications of what happens if this guy becomes ritually unclean as a priest. Oh, Reed. What? I have always thought exactly what you're doing right now. But now I'm looking at this again. And the man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Yes. The priest happened to be going down the same road. The priest is not on his way to do his priestly duties. He's done. Yes. It's okay if he becomes ritually unclean. He's not on his way to work. Because he's going off like he's off duty. Yeah. You still can't you still can't be ritually unclean. Like if you're a Levite still in the land and your family member dies, uh, you have to like stand outside of the cemetery, like on the road outside, because you're not allowed to go in. Um just because you're in the priestly line. So it doesn't, uh, I, I do have something to say about Jericho eventually when we get there, but, <laughs> okay. um, but it would still, it's still a thing. It's not just like, while I'm serving God, I have to be clean. Like, yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. But it's also a whole identity. Okay. Right. So even if you're not able to perform your duties or even if it doesn't have any impact for whether you can or can't perform your duties as the priest, there is some sense of, I think, public embarrassment uh, at being ritually unclean. 
And then, and this is where I'm, I don't actually know this for a fact. I'm uh, again, looking at what Bailey has said, but he talks about the, the process that a ritually unclean priest has to go through to restore their ritual purity or cleanliness. Um, And he says that it is on this priest to purchase like a, a red heifer specifically is what he says. Uh, and you have to find this thing, you have to buy it, and then you have to burn it until it is like completely consumed, which is going to be at your expense. And it's going to take quite a bit of time. Um, cause if this is the case, I mean, I've never tried to like burn a, like a, a cow, a cow to yeah. ashes. I've never tried to do that, but I'm assuming that it's glad to hear that read. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's not your weekend plans. No, I mean, I do like... live in rural Missouri, but that's not what I like to do on the weekend. Um, and so there is like this real um, cost that could be incurred to this priest. Um, and on top of that, I don't know that anybody in the community is going to fault the priest for not stopping. Um, and this kind of goes back to the conversation around like, who is my neighbor and who is not my neighbor and yes, you're supposed to love your neighbor, but if it comes to like a non-neighbor, then like actively you shouldn't harm the non-neighbor or the the Gentile person. But if they're in danger, you're not under any obligation to rescue them, uh, to go out of your way to do anything about it. About it. I will stop you right there. Please do. I can. <laughs> I can. Okay. I am. To- I could be totally wrong here. Okay, which wouldn't be your fault because you're pulling from our boy Kenny B. Kenny B. Um, <laughs> who lived uh, in the Levant for a long time. Uh, I don't believe he's a Talmud expert. So, not that I'm a Talmud expert. I've studied the Talmud, but I I reserve the title expert for somebody else um okay so ritual ritually unclean we do tend to think like from one side theologically jesus takes care of all of that but then sometimes we also associate oh boy that's a big deal um you have to go through this whole thing um a couple things to check in here there are a lot of things that you do that make you ritually unclean including like being with your spouse sexually. Uh, And so it's a continual thing, right? This is, it's not like I've never been unclean my whole life. Um, It's something that happens. And that's why the mikvah system existed. Why we have these cleansing pools everywhere is because it's a continual problem that you have to deal with. And ding, 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 we actually know, uh, I have a link for you, Brent, to put in the show notes. We know in the second temple period, um, Jericho has tons of mikvot down there, like an unusual amount of mikvot um, because of what it was doing, um, the function of the town of Jericho in this era um, was, uh, it was a priest hotspot actually for um, their administration. So you would go down there to get supplies and everything that you needed um, to bring back to Jerusalem, which is why everybody's going down there. And that's why there's a bunch of mikvahs. So this guy could have done his job, which I'll talk about in a second, and then gone down to the city, hopped in a mikvah and been okay. Um, The red heifer thing, I haven't heard that you have to get the red heifer yourself. That doesn't mean that it's not true. Um, But I've uh 
been taught that that's something that they have on hand. Like they're not going to kill a whole cow for you. A cow is a really big financial resource. And so if you read that section, I think it's numbers 19. It says that um, the priests burn down the cow and collect the ashes and mix the ashes with this water. And that's what you have, um, to become clean. So they would probably have that in Jericho for him. Now, again, I could be wrong. And I like the reading that says that everybody would have understood because again, pastorally from like a heart perspective, we do get a lot of like cultural grace to not love people, (laughs) to not be sacrificial, right? It's almost more expected in a workplace to be like, oh my gosh, that guy. Mm." Yeah. And then you're Coworker says, oh, I can't believe you're so nice to him. And when he said blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that's what we do for cloud and to build false intimacy is to um, talk about stuff like that and not slow down and honor people. So I like that reading. I don't know if it's if it's what's exactly is going on here. And then that last thing, um, you're under no obligation to rescue them if they're in danger. That is not true. I can 100% say there is a rule. Um, When I was studying at Abed Mitrash in Jerusalem, I talked about it all the time. Um, You are under obligation to save someone's life, even if it breaks Stora. Um, It doesn't matter what is being... Um, what lot is the highest obligation is to save a human life precious thing in Jewish theology is human life and so you're allowed to break a mitzvah or um, to not do something which is kind of like Jesus talks about the donkey right it's like well that's not a human life do we still save the donkey in the ditch on Shabbat and break Shabbat and Jesus says yes we do animal life is important too interesting um, but so um, So on the one hand, I like the reading of everybody would have understood because sometimes everybody does understand when you don't do stuff and it's harder to be a peacemaker than it is to not. But also just want to come in with the true facts, true facts from L. We love facts. What, um, I guess, how do you read the priest then here, L? Um, Like what, what kind of feelings or like, thoughts do you have about the priest and what is going through the priest's head maybe right uh loathe as i am to get to get anywhere near um just chucking him in a bad guy category like you said i really appreciate that sometimes we really dip our toe into the anti-semitism pool by making assumptions about mm-hmm. these different figures and being like all oh, these guys are just idiots or evil or whatever um i do think that they would have caught the i think the listener would have heard both sides of like yeah it is a a bit of a pain it's bad to become ritually impure impl- but gosh, if his life is at stake, Mm -hmm. um, he is supposed to stop and kind of seeing the both sides of it, I think is, um, I think can be helpful because again, when we're trying to decide, boy, do I, am I really going to stop and talk to this homeless person or whatever quintessential example, we have both those conversations in our head of like, well, what's this really going to be good for? Well, what's really going to happen? Yeah. And so I think that's a bit of that going on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was thinking about like when I see people with their hazard lights on the side of the road, I typically don't even stop and it doesn't cost me anything. Like there's really not much to 
take into consideration there. Maybe I'm going to run a little late, but certainly like there's less at stake for me helping somebody on the side of the road uh, than would have been for the priest in this situation, whatever, you know, however far that goes. Right. Uh, anyway, just I think it's, you know, so uh, I thank you for the facts. And I think that's a helpful corrective. Um, and I I also just want to, you know, I just know for me, it is really easy to cast to paint these characters with a like very wide brush uh, right. and would would like to, you know, uh, humanize them a little bit if we can. I do Absolutely. also wish we had a clearer picture of where Jesus is when he's telling this. Mm-hmm. Because immediately before this in Luke 10, um, he sends out the 72 um, and it says, uh, sending you, sending them out uh, to every town and place where he was about to go. And then he references all the towns of the Galilee um, in his speech. And then it says they return and then they have a conversation. And then our story today just begins with on one occasion, like no... No chronological or geographical information at all. Like it just seems completely disconnected. And then right after our story, um, Jesus finishes speaking to this guy. And then it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. um, And she had a sister named Mary. And there, I think we know, do we know where they live? They're in Bethany. I think they're in Bethany. Which is, but I could be wrong. That's down. Light it up, Slack. Isn't isn't that down by Jericho, ish? Yes, Bethany's nearby. So if if he's in Jericho, and like addressing the people who are coming and going and doing their work here, like that gives a whole different flavor to his list of examples. Because the way I've heard it before, and we're not there yet, so I, uh, maybe I'm giving things away, but. Uh, the the way I've heard it before is like, oh, the expected third person is uh, the Pharisee. But I don't know that it's all that clear that he's actually up in the Galilee where the Pharisees would be the expected person. So I don't know. I'm not sure what to think. I think it's definitely possible that he's not. Um, back in chapter nine, it talks about him leaving the Galilee to set out for Jerusalem. And then all the way, like all the all these chapters between nine and then when Jesus arrives in, <clears throat> excuse me arrives in Jerusalem later, uh, it seems to like, there's a lot of traveling going on. Um, and it feels a little hodgepodgey to me, like, and, and difficult to know exactly where he is. Like we do know that in chapter nine, right before this, he's sending out the 12 at the beginning of 10, he's sending out the 72, even when the 12 go out, uh, or yeah, I think it's the 12, uh, they go to Samaria and apparently there's a Samaritan village that rejects them. And they come back and they're and this is actually getting into maybe some of the feelings surrounding Samaritans. But the disciples are like, oh, do you want us to send fire down on them uh, since they didn't accept you? And so I think that there's, you know, like there is a lot of traveling coming and going. Samaria is in play here um, and maybe Jericho, too. Uh, And so I think Luke may be situating this particular parable right here. Uh, in the midst of all that definitely would bring some color to how the people would have heard it. And maybe it's smudged next to the sending of the 72 because Jesus is also teaching about the way they should be conducting themselves on the road. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. So what do we got next? Uh, So then we come to the point in the story where a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Okay. 
So we've got the Samaritan. Um, and we, I, I don't know that for a lot of us, Samaritan means much. Um, like <clears throat> we are a part, our family is a part of a Christian, like healthcare sharing ministry called Samaritan. Uh, I don't know if anybody's heard of that before, but it's Me like. Me too, Reed. Wow. Uh, and so, you know, I think. We, oh man, I so hope I can just send my money to you someday. That would be incredible. Because you hope that I get hurt or sick. Well, no, Ouch. but if you do, I hope that I'm on the list to send money to you. That would just, just be send money. Extra just send special. money to me anyway. Just send it to me anyway. Um, so we got a Samaritan and we, this story has actually created the idea of, you know, goodness that we think of when we think of Samaritans. Um, but it's worth stopping to point out that I think this would have come about as at least a surprise, if not a shock to, uh, the other hearers. Because I think at this point, um, the parable is set up kind of like a three guys walk into a bar joke. And <laughs> if you're there and you're listening to Jesus, you get a priest, you get a Levite. And then who's going to come through the door into the bar next? And I don't, maybe it's a Pharisee. Maybe it's just a lay person. Uh, they, and so uh, instead, you, you definitely don't get that. And what we get instead is a Samaritan. And this is where, um, for anybody not familiar, it's probably worth giving some cultural and sociological kind of background to help us feel the shock of what Jesus is doing in this parable. Uh, and so, L, I'm going to put the question to you first. Um, what do we know about Jews and Samaritans and their relationship with one another. Yeah, you've got some great quotes on this document, actually. Um, do you want to read a couple of those? First yeah, and so we'll talk about there's background? a sure. So um, one of the background elements here, actually very near to the time of Jesus, Josephus writes a story uh, that in the year six, there were some Samaritans who came in and scattered human bones in the temple court at Passover, which I mean, I, I can only imagine is like desecration of desecration. That's like maybe the most offensive thing that I could think to do. Um, and so you've got that. Um, there's a um, a quote here from the Mishnah that says, uh, um, I guess at this point, some disciples are putting a question to, I think it's Akiva. And they say, Rabbi Eliezer used to say, whoever eats bread by Samaritans is like one who eats the flesh of a pig. Uh, and then there's, I found a quote to, um, this actually comes from Bailey from Ben Sira that says, there are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir, the Philistines, and the stupid people living at Shechem, which would be the Samaritans. Right. Not a nation Boy. at all. Those stupid people. Okay. So that's Ben yeah. Sira. Showing up problematic every time. Man, you think maybe this one will be okay? Nope, not this time. on the gasoline. Yeah, he sure is. Okay, so why are they this hate hated? Um, I've heard this preached a bunch of times from a racial reconciliation angle, which, you know, it's something we need to talk about um, in our era. And so that's great. Um, but the reason that we do that is because when um, the people of Yehuda got taken into exile, um, the empire sent back 
people to settle the land and to try to have some assimilation happen right into the cultural monolith that was um, Assyrian Babylon. Uh, and so the Samaritans are the people who are left over from that time who intermarried. And that's what we usually talk about when we hate on Samaritans or when the people hated on Samaritans. That angle is perfectly good. It is useful. It is helpful. However, um, in my opinion, it's still missing a central thing and something that might be a little bit more to our heart, right? Again, I'm most interested in what's cutting uh, cutting quickest to our heart. Um, and I talked about this when we ran into the Samaritan woman with Jesus um, at the well. Um, but the shamar is the root of Samaritan. It's a sheen there. So shamar means to guard. So what happened when everybody got hauled off into exile is we got the writing of the Babylonian Talmud um, in which they figured out, okay, this is how we're going to carry out the law. This is how we're going to do these things. They added a bunch of commandments as fences. Famously, the Samaritans viewed themselves as the people who were guarding the original doctrine, the original theology, the original text. They had their own Samaritan Pentateuch because they believed that um, even all the prophets weren't what we would call inspired. Um, they believed that like prophets are good and everything, but that's not God's word. They believe Torah alone was God's word. Um, and they despised all these commandments that were piled up on top of Torah. And they thought those were all extra, something that Jesus agrees with from time to time, you know, when we're talking about hand washing and stuff, um, and Shabbat. Uh, and so what's makes this really interesting story to me is that it's not about, you know, the gross person. And a lot of us, you know, would have trouble imagining someone as a, a from a different race as being gross. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, that's not central to us. But it is pretty easy for us to imagine hating on someone who believes that they're the ones who have Christianity right. You know, that denomination who's like, you guys have had added all of this extra stuff, and that's not actually biblical. These are people just like us today who are arguing about what's biblical and what's not biblical and where we've gotten, you know, all wrapped up around something that's not actually central to the text and what is actually part of the story and what has actually been added and who is God's, you know, what's God's original intention? What's his character like? It's it's more arguing between denominations. And I think it's a lot easier to tell stories about and to hate on people mm -hmm. who we believe should have it all together, right? Like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so did that. They take the name Christian and they did that, mm -hmm. right? And then the way that we speak about that person or that group or denomination or party or whatever, um, it comes from this frustration of I'm actually the one who has it right. You don't have it right. I have it right. I'm the one doing Christianity correctly. I'm mm. the one following Jesus properly. You're the one who needs to get in line. So that's the tension um, going on between these groups. And so I think Jesus sets this up, not just as a somebody you think is gross and mm -hmm. you don't want to talk to and you have this history with, but you come across someone who thinks you're doing it wrong and they know better than you on the mm -hmm. thing that you like care most about in the world. 
here's how you should view them. Mm, we're preaching a little bit now. Um, yeah, that's, that's good. Um, and so I was thinking about, um, you know, what would it take? What would Jesus need to say if he was saying it to us? If our parable, uh, were like about a, if we had a guy come down the road and it's like a senior pastor and then we get another guy come down and it's an elder, like what would be, um, a good equivalent to the Samaritan for the third person, um, and I think it kind of, it, it depends like who the audience is that Jesus is speaking to, um, to kind of capture that Samaritan shock value or that, um, this, the sense of like indignation that they might feel that's like, oh, this person is the one that is like doing it right when our people did it wrong. But I think, you know, if you're, uh, if you're somebody who's on one particular side of the spectrum, uh, like maybe you're, maybe you're leaning towards the right. You're like, you're a conservative person. And maybe then if Jesus is like, yeah. And then after your senior pastor and your, and your elder, then came like a, a woman priest from like the Episcopal church and maybe or Antifa Antifa. <laughs> yeah. And maybe they're of a particular like sexual identity or orientation mm-hmm. that just really rubs you the wrong way. Or if you're like, a, it's not just, it's not just them. Like if you're a, if Jesus is preaching to like people who are more on the progressive end of things and they've got their pastor and their elder that comes down, like maybe the next person to come through the door here is like a MAGA hat wearing Southern Baptist, no offense against Southern Baptist, but I'm just saying like there, it's the person that you're like, we're all, and it's, it's such good information that you gave us there, Al, because it's like, yeah, we all call ourselves Christian. Like we're all going, we, we say we're on the same team and yet that person, like they believe what, and they're the one now. And Jesus uh, puts it to them to say, your own people weren't doing the thing. And here's the person that you think is like, what is wrong with the world? And they are doing the thing. They're the ones who are uh, embodying the way of Jesus, uh, the compassion, right. which we're going to get to in a minute. Right. You know, in in Buddhism, they have this concept of near enemies, and they say your near enemy is a lot more dangerous for you than your uh, than your far enemies. Uh. And so sometimes when we think about like love your enemies, we think about someone totally off the rails, different from us. Like, okay, I have to love ISIS. Um, or something that's a bit outdated now, but you know, um, Mm -hmm. we think like the biggest spectrum is somebody super far from us when truly the people who can be hardest for us to love are the people in our own family, especially people in our own Christian family, right? The people who, boy, we're aligned on things of like the issues of salvation or whatever, but Mm -hmm. it really grinds my gears when so-and-so says this, right? Um, when so-and-so wants to show up in this way, when so-and-so says, well, you know what the Bible is really about and then fill in the blank. Right. Um, that's the stuff that tends to (laughs) push our buttons. Uh, and so I love that Jesus makes space to say, Hey, this person who you have all these ideas about, maybe they actually do have it together and maybe we mm. actually can learn from them, which is so much more challenging than like <laughs> a theoretical enemy or someone super like, right. Oh, I guess I can learn from the atheist too. Sometimes like, okay, yes. Yeah. Uh, but you want me to learn from that church down the road? Are you right. kidding me? Have you seen the signs in their yard? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause if it's like, Oh yeah, totally. I mean, yes. Firing on all cylinders. If it's an atheist that comes down the road after the past, and the elder, then you hear that a lot differently than the other uh, examples that we just gave. Oh, that's good stuff. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, this story, um, um, it could have been awesome for the audience if it had been about a good Jew helping a pitiful Samaritan. Um, but instead, right. it's about this Samaritan. And that's why I think like maybe the vile Samaritan is like a way that, you know, that's how they would hear like good Samaritan. What are you talking about? Uh, mm-hmm. And instead, the the good the good Samaritan, the vile Samaritan, the hated Samaritan, the Samaritan comes down, uh, and far from a good Jew helping the Samaritan, the Samaritan comes down and helps, and doesn't just like help a little bit, um, but well, Brent, can you go ahead and uh, read through the rest of the the parable here? He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So there's probably a lot that can be mined there. I'm going to leave that for now. Uh, mm-hmm. Just save it to say that it is much to this Samaritan's own expense, uh, that he's not just doing like the minimum required, but he is going to uh, what is an unknown level of expense for him. I'll come back, whatever it is, no matter how much, I'll take care of it. I love what you said, Reed, about how the story would have really like just, you know, made everyone so happy if it had been about the good Jew <laughs> helping the pitiful Samaritan, because we have this like a fetishization, wow, I can't speak, fetishization of like the person who's in need of we have this rescue narrative, right? Like, oh, the creationist comes upon the mm-hmm. evolutionist and mm-hmm. creationist helps the evolutionist or vice versa. I don't care. <laughs> and now they can um, share and, Jesus with them. And now, yeah. And because he helped him, um, now he gets to X, Y, Z. And that's not there at all. Jesus is like, no, not the point. That's yep. not what's happening here. Uh, yep. You don't get to look at the person in need as someone who like stokes this bigger story and enables you to like flex your identity it's just like that's a person who needs help Mm -hmm. the end Mm -hmm. okay so i want to there are kind of two big ideas left that kind of uh fold into one another that i want to go over uh and i just want to ask the question other than the obvious fact that the samaritan took pity and took care like he he took action when the priest and the levite did not um what is different between uh, from uh, about the Samaritan than the priest and the Levite. Uh, so just everybody take a second to think what is different about them. And I'm going to read through our introduction to each of them and just be listening and see if you can uh, point out what is different. So the priest, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So I'm just going to let that simmer for half a second for everybody who's listening. See if you can point out, point out what was different. Uh, and and, and here, here it is. It is, I think it has, and this again is a small like passing note that Bailey points out that to me, actually, this becomes like the, the kind of main thing about this parable for me. And that is where do the feet of our priest Levite and Samaritan take them? The priest, uh, so he's, he's going down the road and he sees him and maybe he sees him from a long way off. And as he gets closer, uh, before he gets too close, he crosses over, he passed by on the other side. 
And so uh, when he gets to the wounded man on the road, uh, he's like, he's not even in the ballpark of where this guy is before he crosses over to the other side. The Levite, it says, came to the place and saw him. And so I, what I, how I read that is he's, he's getting closer. He's zeroing in closer. Um, and he comes to the place and then he passes by. Uh, he crosses would, would over say, and passes would you by. Would say the on Levite the other side. was homing in? <laughs> I would actually say the Levite was homing in. <laughs> Very astute observation there, Brent. Uh, but then the Samaritan, it says that he came not just to the place, but it says he came to where the man was. He came upon him. Uh, he gets all the way up and he encounters the person. And now I'm going to put on my pastor hat a little bit. And point out that this guy gets close enough to see this unidentifiable um, person, this un- this unidentified man who is there suffering. Uh, and regardless of what the cost may or may not be to himself about cleanliness or anything else, he comes all the way up and he encounters that person there. And uh, it doesn't matter what the identity is. This is a human being, the Samaritan recognizes, who deserves care for that fact and for that fact alone. And I think this is an invitation for us to consider uh, where we tend to fall in when it comes to the hurting and the marginalized people around us. So there's we've been talking about uh, this parable as a way of looking at how we regard the Samaritan type figures in our lives, the ones who are our near enemies that are close, but they're just so far off. And it's an invitation to consider our response to them. But now I think it's also a response or an invitation for us to look at and consider how we are looking at the people who are hurting and marginalized around us. So uh, there's there's like the priest response. And it makes me wonder, uh, for those of us who are crossing over before we pass by, we're not even getting close, it makes me wonder how many... Uh, like hurting, marginalized, lonely individuals uh, that we remain unable to have compassion for, uh, because I want to hit back on that word compassion, that idea of compassion, but uh, that is what the Samaritan has that the other two don't have. And I think they remain, the priest remains unable to have the compassion because they're kind of just flying over at 30,000 feet. Um, and this could be a person that's like, it could be uh, a, a queer person, LGBTQ+. It could be a person um, who has had to make difficult decisions after an unplanned pregnancy. It could be a homeless person like we talked about. Whoever it is, people in our midst who who feel outcast and alone, cut off, uh, in need of love and compassion from the church body. And some of them have even been been beaten half to death by our own. Some of us, we only get about as close as the priest. And I just imagine the way that we kind of like stick to our Bible system. Um, we're not even really dealing with like the issue at large, genuinely, whatever that issue might be that we associate this person with. Definitely not dealing with the real person that's in front of us. We take kind of a, well, the Bible says it and I believe it and that settles it approach. Uh, and we, we, we don't really wrestle with the complexity of whatever these issues are and the people that we associate with them. Um, because it's like, well, I've read the, I've read the quick, I've, I've done, a, I've done a scan of the handful of relevant biblical passages. I've done my due diligence with my Google search and this is what the Bible says. And maybe that gives us some ammunition 
for social media. Maybe it gives us some ammunition for like, oh, if I say this, then the people who are on my side, like they're going to give a like, they're going to nod and murmur and support me. Um, But what that attitude does is it leaves us nowhere near a place where we can actually have anything like love or compassion for the hurting people around us. And then I think uh, we've got the Levite, the people who kind of come to the place, so to speak. And I just imagine like we're going beyond like a curt response uh, and we do our research and we do our study and we watch our videos and we read the books from all the different sides. um, And we come up with a pretty good opinion about this person. We come up with a pretty good opinion of what's right and wrong, or we think we kind of see this hurting person for what they are because we've read all about their situation. Um, And we even maybe come up with a pretty decent, although completely theoretical idea about what we can do to help anything. And while I commend all of that, I think if that's all we do, then we still are not in a position to love and have compassion in a truly redemptive way, because we're not seeing how any of that nuance and complexity that we're reading about, we're not seeing how it takes on flesh in the suffering brothers and sisters right in front of us. And so then, uh, finally, the Samaritan, what the Samaritan means to me in his coming up to the person, all the way up to them, is that it's only when we take the time and the effort and we risk getting all the way up to that uh, naked, half-dead, barely-breathing person in front of us. It is only when I get all the way up there to share that space with them that I can truly see them, not as an opinion on one side of the problem or another, not as simply like a token person for one side of the issue or another, but we actually have to get all the way up to them as and see them as the real kind of raw humans that they are. And it is only once we're there that we then can uh, be in a place to imitate and to experience the Christ-like compassion that our vile Samaritan is embodying. Right. Yeah. Um, I love that you pointed out that it's a both sides issue because it's easier for all of us to take that 30,000 foot viewpoint, right? Mm -hmm. And to skim past and to skim over and not get into the messiness, not get into the smell, um, not get into Mm -hmm. the actual hurt that someone else has experienced. And like the perfect first starting place is just when we run into people who think so differently from us, even though we feel like we're supposed to be batting for the same team. And yet you say X, Y, Z, are you kidding me? Is asking why, you know, and if we were able to say more about, understand our own vulnerabilities and insecurities and where we're coming from, of course, for that conversation to happen. But if we are able to come at it from, well, this is really important to me. um, And this message has caused a lot of hurt in my life. And I'm not sure what I think about this, but I know for sure this, that's a lot more helpful um, than the kind of you know, shooting Bible verses, dropping down like paratroopers, um, people like, well, you should say this because this, right. Um, and I think we see that modeled in the very first couple lines of the text. Um, you pointed out that, um, the Samaritan came upon him autos in, in the Greek and that the equivalent in Hebrew is, um, al, the, the preposition al, and the Ruach Harnai, the spirit of the Lord, of course, is the first 
time mm. that that preposition is used, um, the spirit didn't just stay up in the 30,000 foot range and say, don't worry, like the new creation's coming, like God's going to do a thing, tohu vavohu, like, bye. No, it says that the ruach, the spirit of God, merahafet al, over, came over, came upon, it's the same word, um, upon the chaos and waded into it, right? Melchem Mendel Schneerson says that um, God's spirit is always, always percolating over the darkness, over the woundedness, over the chaos, and is Mm -hmm. always ready to dive in. Um, And so putting Jesus's character on display to the world um, with the help of the spirit, right? Embodying that, incarnating that, for us needs to look the same of, okay, these things I notice irritate me. (laughs) These things make me feel uncomfortable. These things might even make me need to take a bath later, but I'm going to stop my day. I'm going to stop and not worry about what other people are thinking about me. And I'm going to get down into all of this with you. And I want to hear about this and uh, I want to learn from it and I want to bless you, right? That's what we're supposed to be all about. That's so good. All peoples. That's so good. Um, <laughs> I preached a sermon on this before, and it was actually a long time ago, linked in the podcast. And I'm <laughs> what just do you saying mean a long time Al, ago. I think you just preached a sermon like two minutes ago, and uh, then Al had a sermon right. too. I love it. That's what I'm saying. So, <laughs> L, I'm stealing that uh, about the spirit of the Lord for the next time I preach it. That is that is too do good. It. That is beautiful. That's what we're here for. Um, and speaking of that, I shared a story about my oldest son in uh, that that sermon from a while back, and I'm not going to share it again now. I would really like to, but we're um, we're just we are living up to our reputation for going long. Um, so I just want to I'm, I'm going to leave that where it is. You can link that if you want to, Brent. Albeit, people should know now that L has corrected some facts, correct those for the sermon as well, and I'll correct those for the next time I preach it. Um, so in the NIV, in the NIV, this is the last thing I want to uh, want to focus on, um, and that is when the Samaritan comes to this hurting, near-dead, naked person, it says he took pity on him, and uh, another word, another English word for that is uh, he had compassion um, and the, the Greek word is, um, you, you'll have to correct my pronunciation again. Splugnitsomai. I love it. Okay. Um, it's your which, name, so which, I've been staring at it this whole time. Splugnitsomai, <laughs> which means to like be, it's, it, it has its, uh, relationship to the word for like your gut or your bowels. And mm. it means to be moved all the way deep down inside yourself, almost like you've got a stomach ache because you feel so strongly. Um, and to see and then to splagnitsomai, to see and then to be moved with compassion is a common refrain in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get it when, like when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or when he went ashore... <clears throat> He saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Or when he saw her, he had compassion on her and he said, do not weep. And the he in all of these is, of course, Jesus. Um, And in fact, in the gospel stories, whenever you read somebody feeling this compassion in their bones, like in their gut, it's always Jesus. Um, And there are also three parables that Jesus tells. This one, the one about the prodigal son, which we'll be getting to, and the one about the unforgiving servant, which we'll also get to. Uh, where this word is used. And 
each time, uh, whenever we see it, like in the prodigal son, it's the father. And in the unforgiving servant, it's the king uh, to whom this servant owes a great debt. They see they are moved with compassion and it's always the God figure in these uh, parables or what I read as the God figure. I don't actually know that those can be open for interpretation, but I read it as the God figure is the one being moved, splugnitsomai, with compassion. So I think it takes the maybe shock value up a notch with the Samaritan thing because the he- the Samaritan, uh, I don't think, is just a hero. Like we can also read him as the image of God, God's self. Uh, por- portrayed like so. So it's not just that the Samaritan is like doing a nice thing. Like here is God living through this person, embodying, being embodied by this person, and it's even being portrayed as the one that you thought was the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing that I that I want to point out about this word, compassion, splugnitomai, is that whenever. A figure in the Gospels, whether it's Jesus or whether it's these God figures in the parables, whenever they are moved with compassion, it is always, 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 always followed by that person moving to action to save the ones that they feel compassion for. So there is no way that you can be moved with compassion and then not do something. If it is genuine, deep down compassion for this person because you have come upon them, you've gotten into the stink and the mess and all of that, then it will, if the Spirit of God is coming upon you as you come upon them, it will move you to save the ones uh, that you are feeling that compassion for. You know, to tie it into the Spirit, the uh, Hebrew equivalent is Racham, which the foreman stands out there. We'll know that Racham, again, that deep internal organs um, in Racham, it's very specifically tied to the womb. It's the word for womb. Uh. And um, so it's a female image and nurturing compassion, providing space for someone else to grow and flourish. Um, so a feminine image being tied with the spirit, whom, of course, Ruach is a feminine verb, uh, noun rather, wow parts of speech um feminine noun and always gets female uh adjectives and verbs and everything so okay i'm gonna steal uh, that one too you're welcome i also Just love that little uh, i also love that balls. you said foreman stands that yeah, foreman stands. <laughs> what, I, what i was thinking about when that happened is like i wonder if the uh if the transcribers are going to catch that whenever we get around to making the transcript for this episode that they can understand what in the world you're talking about we got Kenny B fans, we got Mackie heads, we got Foreman oh, stands, you know. Um, it's right? our community. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, let's go ahead and get to. So that's that's all that I really have for the parable itself. Um, and now we can go ahead and get to the little epilogue here uh, and get these people on their way. So whoosh back into the reality of the story out of the vignette of the parable. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Mm. So Jesus uh, finishes with a question. And and again, like this is just the highlight, the slant sideways nature of the parables. We said in the intro that uh, the things that are hardest about ourselves that we need to hear, we can't really hear directly. 
And so Jesus, uh, it is a mercy, it's a grace to this expert in the law that Jesus tells the story and then just asks him the question. And of course, the answer is uh, undeniable. There is no option um, but to to answer, as the expert in the law does, the one who had mercy on him. And so as many others have pointed out, the script has has been flipped and the question uh, is kind of transformed from who is my neighbor to... Uh, who are you being called to be a neighbor to? Um, and that's been talked about before, so I don't need to talk about it again. And of course, there are like precisely one trillion other things that could be said about this parable um, to it, just a million things, including a very precisely, a precisely, precisely. Wow, and no, you count it. No more or fewer. Um, wow. Including a very, very brilliant remez to a certain story in Second Chronicles, which I'll leave people to hunt down. Um, but just as kind of a concluding thought, I will offer this, that this parable uh, is not just another empty exhortation to save the world by doing nice things, although I'm definitely not against doing nice things, and I think uh, they should be done. Um, but I think it is this intimate picture of a God uh, who has compassion and acts to save people, and it's also an invitation to recognize this God and even uh, his Christ uh, and, and to be surprised when we see God in unexpected people. Um, I also think there is an element to it that is kind of a stinging rebuke that we have not loved as we could and as we should. Uh, and I think it is an invitation for us to examine, you know, we don't always ask the question out loud, and who is my neighbor? Um, but maybe, I I don't know, I know that I have a tendency at least to ask it inwardly, which is just another way of asking, like, who do I not have to love? Like, there is a a darker part of me uh, where that voice is very loud. um, And this parable is a confrontation of that voice. Yeah, I think it shows up within us when we find ourselves asking the question or feeling like, well, I have a right to be angry at that group or that person. Anytime that phrase comes up, I think that's shorthand for and who is my neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, it's it's a, it's an invitation to not stop short or cross over before we get to the person in the place uh, to to ask maybe even this person, whatever. I, I don't know who they are. I can see them from a distance. They're clearly hurting. Maybe I need to approach them to get up close to see the people around us, uh, to be moved with compassion and then just to mercifully enter uh, into their suffering, into their lives, whatever the risk might be to us, um, but to, to continue to follow where, because that's where the Spirit of God is leading uh, as it moves upon us uh, to move us to those around us. The end. Amen. Amen. Al, thank you so much. Uh, I This has been a great conversation, and I just really, really super love and appreciate all of your thoughts on this. It's been very helpful for me. Thanks for having me. It's super generous of you to share your mic. (laughs) Also with my baby daughter, who miraculously (laughs) blessing of the Lord has not cried. Yeah, no, it's been, it's been beautiful. Yeah. Well, uh, that does it for this episode. If you want to tell Marty how awesome this was, even uh, at the length that it is, you can get a hold of him (laughs) on Twitter at Marty Solomon and uh, I'm at EIBCB. Uh, L, you can email at lgroverfricks at gmail.com and Reed will hopefully be hanging around the Baymoss Slack after this episode post. We'll see what happens. 
I'll twist his arm if he if he doesn't respond to you. So I'm sure there will be plenty of comments. Longest episode ever. Uh, I don't. It's, well, got, it's gotta be. I don't think we're. Is there. it not? I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Maybe I should have told the Briggs story. Darn it. <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> well, I will link that sermon so you can listen to that uh, if you if you didn't catch it when you're going through in session three. Awesome. Um, so all that will be in the show notes at BamaDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.